0: Welcome to the New Books Network, I'm Pierre D'Arensé. I have hosted numerous conversations about the intersection of art and politics on this channel. The majority of these discussions, and the books on which they are based, only take a narrow, specialised view of one form of practice or another. The reality, however, is that while much of art practice today describes itself as political, and even if that politics appears to be uniform, artists produce all sorts of art for all sorts of situations. How can we think about art activism, social practice, and aesthetic world-making in consistent and internally compatible terms? Artists We Make the World, a new book by Vid Simoniti, goes a considerable distance to construct a holistic theory of contemporary political art. Vid is a lecturer in the philosophy of art at the University of Liverpool. He is also the co-editor, with James Fox, of Art and Knowledge after 1900. Before we begin, though, two content warnings one is that we end up talking about forensic architecture yet again the other is that we discuss kantian aesthetics and that the concept of beauty gets an airing too if that's not intriguing i don't know what might be as of that you'll find links to the items we'll discuss in the show notes Hey, welcome to the show Thanks so much, Pierre. Thanks for having me. This is a formidable effort. I have to offer you a qualified congratulations. Qualified because, as I already warned you, you we're going to disagree about some of the things that you have written. (laughs) Um, But congratulations nonetheless, because this is an incredibly thorough attempt to systematize the quagmire of politics as it enters contemporary art or contemporary art as it enters politics. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll offer it qualified thanks to your qualified <laughs> congratulations. I do mean this sincerely. In as much as this animal that you've attacked is inconsistent, has a history that is incredibly difficult to pass and it seems to be developing at breakneck speed, you try to come up with a grand theory of everything, which is something we should want of philosophy. So with that in mind, mm-hmm. I want to ask you how you came to all of this. I know that you're a philosopher, but I also know that you've had some practical engagement in art and its production and dissemination. So maybe to set the scene, it would be good to, mm-hmm. to understand how you came to the subject.
1: Yeah, a bit of an uh, intellectual autobiography, if you like. So yes, yeah, so, so you're right. So I, I started my academic path as a philosopher. So I studied philosophy as an undergrad, as a, you know, for, as a graduate student, and I've always admired the rigor that philosophy can bring to any number of issues and the kind of generality with which it attaches itself to to these issues, right? A philosopher can discuss philosophy of science or aesthetics in in the same graduate seminar. But then what what I did find is that at least the way that philosophy was practiced in Britain, it didn't tend to attack so many cultural issues. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I did my PhD Still working with philosopher, but at the Ruskin School of Art in Oxford, which is an art school, so that's how I became involved with a lot more artists, curators. I sort of you know co-organized or co-curated a few small shows, and I ended up writing about contemporary art. So that's my route into it.
0: Huh. Well, it's not unusual that a lifelong engagement with intractable problems starts at the art school.
1: Yeah, so, so on the one hand, as I started to move around the art world and sort of see exhibitions and talk to artists and so forth, this idea that contemporary visual art, so art as we find it in museums and galleries, the idea that this should address especially political issues, so issues to do with identity, to do with geopolitics, to do with the environment. So this idea seems really, really deeply entrenched, right? If to the To the extent that I think if you were to say... Something like, Oh, you know, should contemporary art deal with political issues at all? The kind of question is, well, but you know what what is your politics? It's not so much what is the answer to mm-hmm. this question. But then, on the other hand, right, if you speak to other members of society, whether that be politicians or activists or uh, trade unionists or whatever, or or just the kind of average news consumer the idea that art and contemporary art, which seems so hermetical and so removed from everyday concerns to most people who don't engage with it intimately, the idea that art should have something to do with politics uh, seems really foreign, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you want to campaign for, I don't know, animal rights, you know, why on earth should you try and do that through the gallery rather than just uh, to organize yourself into kind of an activist group or something like that? So this is... You know, this to me has the shape of a philosophical problem mm-hmm. in that you have two very different intuitions. So yeah, so this is so this is what spurred this book, right? Like, let's try and figure out, you know, what if anything can art contribute to the political process, and then you know, especially the, uh, I was led to then look at two different f- ways of doing politics within contemporary art of the last twenty years. So that's the I guess setup.
0: Well, what you said out to do is no mean feat. Um, Thankfully, you do organize the book alongside three different arguments, Mm. and I think it would be useful if we stuck to the kind of three modes of Mm -hmm. engagement between art and politics that you lay out in the book. One is to imagine art as a contribution to public discourse. The second Mm -hmm. one is to imagine art or consider art's contribution as direct action. And the third as um, what you term world-making. Maybe it will be useful to characterize those three to start with before we dive into detail.
1: So the three ways in which I think contemporary art enter politics are, as you say, discourse, action, and world making. So in terms of discourse, what we mean here is broadly the way that people like, say, Jürgen Habermas in his early work characterized politics. um, So as the public sphere. So Mm -hmm. this is the sphere of news, of media, of intellectuals talking to each other, of grassroots people, but it's people talking to each other. And so here we're thinking about art that has a message or art Mm -hmm. that is located predominantly within the gallery, but it tries to put forward a kind of a view of what it is that should be done or what the problem is. And here I I identify a, a kind of like an interesting thing that we might talk about later, which is that within the last 20 years, I mean, even before, but in the last 20 years more pronouncedly, art has had this shift from employing various kind of postmodernist strategies of disrupting discourse, of making it, of, of kind of questioning whether there can be a public sphere at all, and instead participating quite vigorously in this public sphere by trying to present kind of facts, messages, sort of straightforward claims about yeah. What political problems are and how we should live in it. So this, that's that's artist discourse. Artist political action is another trend, again pronounced in the last twenty years, which is this expectations that artists should stop engaging with any kind of medium based, sort of recognizably artistic, if you like, art making, but instead to start organizing, to start participating in protests, to start working with communities, where. Uh, it becomes kind of a lot blurrier as to what it is that the artist is doing anyway, as an artist. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, I guess is the the, the term world making, which has been kicking around the art world for quite a bit. um, But that I model on the philosopher Nelson Goodman who wrote in the 1970s, that's the kind of more traditional concerned with aesthetics, with artworks that try to kind of lure you into their own fictional uh, str- often strange, often fantastical world, but thereby try to remodel the way that you perceive reality. So if you like, these are kind of the three models of especially democratic politics. So discourse, direct action, and shared shaping of values through yeah. through fictional narrative and things like that. Um, and I try to say how contemporary artists experiment in all three of them.
0: And here, it is. here is the explanation for my qualifications at the beginning, which is that from these descriptions, it should be kind of obvious, even to a lay person, that these modes of practice are not necessarily compatible with one another, whether they are compatible philosophically or whether they're compatible even art historically. So there is, there is this kind of expectation by, let's say, those kind of people who don't necessarily want to see galleries and museums turned into community centers or Activist hubs that the first two modes of engagement, the the truth-making discourse that makes explicit claims, or social practice, the second, that they they should not really be counted as art. And I'm definitely not going to try to side with this argument, but I want to note that it is really pervasive that there continues to be in the general population a kind of great mistrust of those kind of modes of production, and I want to. At the same time, Mark, that the mode of world-making that you refer to, and I think you acknowledge this in the book, is actually that this world-making trope was what art always has been. So there is a kind of precipice that you you try to address. And I wonder whether there is a historical moment that that you identify. You make a distinction. It's kind of a mythical change between the 1960s and the 70s and the historicization of art in which... Somehow politics became so pervasive that, that art could no longer avoid it. So how does that end up playing, playing out today?
1: Yeah, so maybe on to this issue of to what extent are any of these practices art or um, how might... Um, wh- wh- why are suddenly these kind of practices that don't seem intuitively like art in any way how do they inhabit museums and um, you know what, what, do, what do we think about that so maybe it's easier if we kind of give an example so one example that I, I uh, discuss in the book and I know you have many opinions on is uh, Forensic Architecture who are a group from uh, who are a research group based at Goldsmiths in London and they are essentially a collective of what we could say are investigative journalists uh, that use um, various empirical methods of measuring uh, to talk about various sorts of war crimes or political problems and so forth. So, you know, one one work by them that was probably the first one that I saw was this installation at the Documenta exhibition in Castle, which was a So you walk into this darkened room and you see a video which is talking about the murder of Halit Yozgat, who is a young man of Turkish heritage, um, a German man, who was killed in what was a series of racially motivated killings in Germany. And this video, in a very kind of blow-by-blow manner, reconstructs the scene of the murder, It uh, talks about the trajectory of the bullet, it talks about the way that the smoke from the bullet would have dissipated through the room, who would have heard what, and it uses this kind of very empirical method to disprove or to question the testimony, the official testimony given by a Secret Service agent who was present in the the room. So it's almost like a true crime episode Mm -hmm. with really forensic methods that finds its place in the gallery. And people might question, well, how is this? This is super interesting and this is very galvanizing, but how is this art, right? Um, this seems to be more like an investigative report or something like this. So uh, I guess that's the kind of work where people might sort of wonder about the arts, art status of, of this kind of work. Um, or to talk about a, a different kind of approach, we might talk about uh, artist uh, Tanya Bruguera, a Cuban artist who we also discussed in the in the book she um, has moved more towards uh, artistic action as opposed to uh, documenting and for example she has founded this uh, art project called immigrant movement international and this is a series of workshops facilitated by the, by Queen's Museum in New York where she goes around the community of you know, migrants or immigrants from South America and she pre- provides everything from aerobics classes to English language classes and all these kinds of things. And this is now called art, right? And yeah, of course, a more traditional perspective might be how are any of these things art at all? Now, what I try to say in the book is not so much kind of question the art status. I think that, you know, any number of things have been art from Duchamp's urinal, you know, more than 100 years ago to these practices today. But rather, for me, the interesting question is, well, can anything more recognizably artistic have anything to contribute to this? Or do these practices signal kind of writing off of art, mm-hmm. right? So, well, because one 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 response to these practices might be, well, these practices are great. You know, they inform us about terrible crimes. They... Um, get the get the public much more engaged and interested in politics they actually make a difference in the world so let's just dispense with galleries and museums we don't really need them let's just have these you know let's just turn them into centers for discussing and doing now that would be one Kind of possible logical outcome, and I tried to provide some sort of resistance to that by saying, "Well, actually, if you introduce things like complexity or experience or imagination to these practices, they are actually they can be actually more effective."
0: Yeah, so the, the argument I think is is crucial, and the difference between an external practice, something like um, investigative journalism, the case of forensic architecture, and the practice of Um, the same discipline by an artist or under the auspices of art institutions, I think that distinction is key. And you use a term which I found quite interesting here. You talk about assimilation of artistic practices Mm -hmm. back into the disciplines from which they sort of stem, from which they feed. But I think here comes a point of disagreement because I think you reserve... A lot more space for the kind of strangeness, for the unpredictability and conclusiveness of even Mm -hmm. those practices. The kind of indeterminacy of of art is one of the things that you end up valuing throughout all your case studies. But since I've spoken about forensic architecture so much on this this podcast, we might as well kind of take it in an up-to-date way. Um, and I think our listeners will be more or less familiar because forensic architecture have now been omnipresent in art institutions. <laughs> they have been omnipresent in the Guardian investigations, in the association with Bell and Cat and so on. But also, yeah. and we're recording this in the middle of November, in the last few weeks, uh, forensic architecture has shown up on the news, opining, with um, authority on uh, who committed a potential war crime in Gaza, in a way that leaves none of the space for for the inconclusiveness of, of art. So, I really appreciated your framing of art's contribution to the discursive sphere, as you term this the new realism, and that that's I think an incredibly useful apparatus from which which allows us to to access like an art historical cache of argument. But I'm not entirely sure whether we are ready to account for a donor's cultural industry. like you want to separate ourselves, separate some of these practices from, for me, in unavoidable complicity with all of the systems they critique. How do we leave any space for this kind of enchantment? How do we leave any space for? For art in what ends up being precisely the thing you you argue that art doesn't become, how do we see a difference between forensic architecture and an investigative um, agency in the end?
1: Well, so on this question of assimilation, right, one thing that I think happens is that practices that are shown within the art world, like Tania Bruguera or forensic architecture, can become indistinguishable from their target disciplines. So Mm -hmm. Ruguera can become almost indistinguishable from or assimilates herself fully to essentially social work, right. And there's a, a lot of kind of work that's been going on in this direction. Called art, util or useful art, um, and yeah, my criticism there is that like once you assimilate yourself so fully to the target discipline, th- then you should be assessed by the measures of that target discipline. And in the case, for example, of social work, that uh, measurement is one of social utility, like how much have you actually yeah. changed? You know, how much, how many lives have you actually changed? And I think with such socially engaged art, quite often what happens is that they might have changed a few lives or have made a little bit of a difference, but when you compare them to NGOs that are already available, and this is something I do for Bruguera in my book, or compare what she she did with various NGOs that, are all, that already were active in, in New York at that point working on, on the lives of immigrants... You see that actually they've achieved very little, and that it, that money would have been better spent just donated to the NGOs that mm-hmm. already exist right so if if artists take up the job of say social workers, then they they're, they're quite likely to fail now with forensic architecture and the question of artists trying to contribute something to a discourse, the question I think becomes a little bit harder uh, or a little bit more interesting, perhaps. So f- what forensic architecture specifically kind of promised to do is to present a kind of a very objective, very data-driven, very evidence-driven picture, which is supposed to clarify things for us in a way the traditional mm-hmm. media with their emphasis on sensationalism don't, right? Right. And they ally themselves, for example, as you said, with Bellingcat, who have done, I, th- I think, some some really great work showing various details, for example, in Russia's disinformation campaigns. But then, yeah, but then in their concrete case, uh, they also clearly have a political stance. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with having that as well, but they have come under fire or under questioning. Also in Art in America, there's a very interesting article about that. I think you have written about this in, in the sense that Forensic architecture promised this kind of hyper empirical impartial method, but then don't necessarily deliver uh, on that or not in all cases. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then yeah, then they should be right. They, sh- they should be criticized for that. Now, I don't look in kind of, you know, every, they do loads of investigations, right? The one that I have looked at, I've kind of tried to double fact check and it sort of checked <laughs> out to me. Um, I can't, you know, speak or comment on on absolutely every investigation that they do.
0: Well, the the question, though, that I want to stick with is mm-hmm. that of aesthetics. And I was very heartened mm-hmm. that you don't shy away from this word. This is kind of a joke in, yeah. my, in my interviews that... Whenever people use that word, they end up having to define it live. Uh Most, including philosophers, struggle. But I don't think you're going to have a problem because you stick with Kant. We're in safe territory, which I really have to applaud you for. But we'll get back to to, to maybe that definition. But I want us to think a little bit about what this regime of truth, this regime of realism, how it interfaces with aesthetic experience and how... Mm -hmm. Given that forensic architecture has had this massive hold over art institutions, the same way that uh, social practices have a hold over art institutions, how these practices end up reshaping the conditions of aesthetic experience for much broader audiences. So I'm going to try to rehearse an argument that I'm developing elsewhere now with Mm -hmm. forensic architecture, which is that once you have... Associated or disassociated. I think you probably go with the latter. Disassociated truth from aesthetic flourish, fantasy, fancy fantasy. I think I'm, I'm, these are words that appear in the relevant paragraph mm-hmm. in the book. They kind of come up for grabs for for anyone else to abuse. So I'm I'm very worried for in forensic architecture, not so much as to whether they are good enough ballistics experts and whether they can do photogrammetry to, to court standards. I'm concerned about the fact that forensic architecture have laid the ground for BBC Verify, which is mm-hmm. the state broadcaster's service for telling us based on OSINT whether a piece of news is right or fake news. I'm afraid that forensic architecture might have kind of undermined our ability to make certain judgments for ourselves on aesthetic grounds, because their de-aestheticization of of information actually just, just kind of leaves us to follow the slogan. I'm not entirely sure that mm. I agree with you. That forensic architecture don't don, don't deploy uh, aesthetic means. They want to rewrite what mm-hmm. aesthetic means. There's, there's, I mean, I interviewed Io Weizmann and Matthew Fuller on the book Ingev- *Investigative Aesthetics. and that that to me was an attempt to completely rewrite what it is that aesthetics might mean. How how we derive information. <laughs> it's
1: that, that that's a super interesting book. But I think what Fuller and Weisman tried to do in that book is to say. Well, everything is aesthetic because aesthetic in its original formulation of the term, you know, going back to the kind of the Greek word before it came to mean something to do with beauty or something to do with Mm -hmm. art or something to do with aesthetic experience... Um, it, it had to do with the senses. And what we're doing is uh, going back to the senses um, by very carefully employing the senses that are available in, in our body and that are available through various instruments. So the kind of empirical investigations that we're doing are in that sense aesthetic. But that is, you know, that is a sophistic trick mm-hmm. for me because, yeah. you know, really, I mean, their approach tries to be kind of hyper-positivist. It's an empirical science-based sort of approach, Um And the look of it, if you like, also conforms to that. So there's a lot of black and white, lots of infographics, lots of graphs, lots of kind of dramatic zoom ins, things like that. Right. So it looks something between a scientific paper and a news report. Right. So, you know, to say that there's some kind of search for an aesthetic experience there as traditionally understood is, I think, a sleight of hand right this is introducing a very empirical and very positivist you know completely positivist idea of truth into the art space now unlike some people reared on a critique of enlightenment ideas of truth who might have a problem with that because it is positivist I don't have a problem with that at all. You know, I'm all down. I'm really down with, with this sort of, um, you know, empirical scientific method. Of course, not naively, right? Of course, there are, there's always ways to question it. The scientific method is not, you know, what people like Richard Dawkins make it out to be. It's not just like scientists and lab coats. It's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I think that a kind of... Um, broadly speaking, post-enlightenment, if you like, idea of truth as something that we acquire through an application of method and then through the questioning of that method is something I'm okay with. Now, okay, we've strayed quite far from the from the original <laughs> question, but if the question is, are forensic architecture kind of dangerous because they are overemphasizing this method, I don't know. I, I don't think I don't see them as dangerous uh, as as you seem to do. Um, I I feel that the reason why they were so successful at, the, at that point is because at, at around the same time that forensic architecture started exhibiting in the art world, of course we have also entered the age of online communication,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where you know a lot of disinformation, a lot of kind of algorithmic feeding and amplifying of emotions. Uh, the, you know the source of various. Forms of disinformation, populism, echo chambers, you know, all of that happened at around that same time. And so I think something so doggedly uh, empirical was seen as refreshing. So, yeah, I don't see them as kind of such a bad thing in a way. I do, however, think that this can't be the end of the story and that there has to be room for True aesthetic experience,
0: if you like. Well, should we should we zoom straight to that? We have so far discussed the regime of truth, the realism. We've uh, we've discussed the utopia, or social practice. Yeah. But we haven't given any examples of this re-enchanting, world-making capacity yeah. of art. That's the point at which we can redeem everything, can't we?
1: Yes. <laughs> Maybe even agree. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, let's go right back, right? Like kind of like a naive pre pre modernist let's say, idea of what art is—the sweet, safe world of uh, counts, aesthetics, uh, and sort of eighteenth and then sort of nineteenth-century art. How wonderful!
0: Brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean it d- yeah. doesn't exist, but I'm I'm, I'm I am i can not wait.
1: <laughs> so 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 the way that um you know we now I think perceive that that time a little over that conception of the aesthetic in that time though, you know, this is a huge generalization, might be that you know before modernism and postmodernism came along, people would go um to to museums, to galleries, and they would sort of um, observe these kind of wonderful, beautiful works of art. And beauty is Mm -hmm. a really important term here, right? Uh, And beauty in that system, in Kantian system, is very strongly differentiated from prettiness, right? Mm -hmm. Or from... Um, Mere agreeableness, as it's also sometimes translated Um, in that beauty is meant to be some kind of a transcendent experience, a meaningful experience. It's not just something being kind of fun or picturesque or uh, kind of consumable. It is something that is removed from both the worlds of science and ethics. So its own kind of special experience, but it's just as meaningful. And now there's a lot of kind of theoretizations from Kant to Romantics to you know, Schopenhauer, you name it, as to why this experience of the beautiful is so important and so crucial. Then the story goes... The beautiful was banished from the art world uh, around 1960. <laughs> Perhaps the last hurrah in some way were the various kinds of abstract expressionists or, you know, Mark Rothko, Possibly. the Rothko Chapel crying uh, at the sublime beauty of the abstraction. <laughs> After that, right, we get uh, conceptualists uh, and we get political art and we get postmodernism. So we either get hard-nosed political statements in art Or we get a kind of cynical postmodernist who just recycles and appends all beautiful things into Mm. nothingness and mocks them, right? Now, what seems to me to to have happened, though, in the last, you know, 20 years, as well as these other trends that we've discussed, is a kind of like a return to this sort of beauty, to storytelling through, through kind of the wonder of experience through art. And it is often connected not with just, you know, if you like, empty pleasure, but with kind of quite strong political means. Mm -hmm. Um, And often it happens in relation to to politics of gender, politics of race, politics of sexuality, you know, so what sometimes gets turned identity politics, if you like. But I think in quite an interesting way, right, where these artists who had a story to tell about uh, who they are or where they fit within the society were able to actually embrace such traditional things as figurative painting, as gold leaf decoration, as fantastic or storytelling. And all of that has kind of led me into this investigation. Well, is there something to be said for the politics of aesthetic experience as well?
0: I'm quite surprised to hear you use the word beauty quite so much in this answer, because I don't think it features in the book. And you, you kind of don't stray into this I guess almost reactionary idea of, of aesthetic experience as being contingent on, on some kind of morally formative idea of beauty. But actually this is what, what I think needs to be exploded. And I think you tried to do that in a book where they need to reformulate what the, the beautiful and the good and the valuable and the truthful in this system of aesthetic world making, like that needs to come from somewhere. And you describe certain types of politics that might fulfill that role. I think you allude to the institution's role in all of this. You also take for granted, I think, in your argument, a lot of progressive politics being somehow in accord with some of this criteria. so maybe maybe starting with a couple of examples of artworks mm-hmm. that, that that might we might we might use as a case study. I think it would be useful to try to, Qualify this, so we've got mm-hmm. to the point yeah. where aesthetic experience—the working out of meanings and codes—and you know, actually engaging with the artwork is mm-hmm. is a value. I don't think you and I are going to disagree with that. But I think we will be useful to fill in some of the of the gaps left yeah. left post Kant.
1: Yeah, you're you're right that I don't say beauty quite so much because it is such mm-hmm. a kind of contentious term, and we can come back to that. But yeah, you're right. Let's start. Let's start with an example. So. Okay, so I opened this chapter with an exhibition in the Black Fantastic, which was shown at the Hayward Gallery in mm-hmm. London um, in 2022, and it showed various artists engaging with diasporic Black imagination in a variety of medium, and what I was really struck by going through that exhibition is that sometimes I felt, wow, this is really interesting work, but it's almost as if the 60s and postmodernism never happened. (laughs) Uh, I almost felt like, it's almost like they're coming from a straight line. I mean, I'm caricaturing a little bit, but it's almost like they're coming through a straight line from the renaissance or something yeah. so one example might be this painting by lina iris victor who is portraying herself uh, as this uh, sibyl like L- the libyan sibyl of mm-hmm. antiquity right the sibyl's the prophetesses of antiquity and she is portraying herself as this figure and in these paintings sort of telling the history of liberia but these paintings what they look like is we see her in kind of uh, allegorical garb, often she's holding some sort of flower or a book, there's a lot of gold leaf around, uh, there's lots of symbols uh, that you kind of begin to decipher, like you might notice in the corner of the painting the Liberian flag, uh, you might see a kind of a black and white rendition among uh, amidst this very colorful painting of a window into uh, some kind of foliage, some kind of forest. Um, so it's a painting that's figurative, that's replete with symbolism, that's beautiful, I think we can say, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's allowed. Yeah, Yeah. it's something that, you know, it's kind of also gallery friendly, you might say, right? The question is, well, what what do these kinds of works that have so long been excluded in some way from discussions of politics and art? What can they do for politics, if anything? Here, I think the short answer is that it is able to reshape our sensibility. Now, there are many ways into yeah. kind of cashing this out. Um, one influential one, which I take some issue with, but I'm also, you know, not entirely inimical to, is Jacques Rancière's view of distribution of the sensible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think distribution of the sensible is a very nice term for what we have in mind. Yep. The way that Ranciere describes it for me is not quite, doesn't quite get there. Mm. But the, the, another term that I prefer to use here is world making, which has been in, invoked a lot recently by Jaina Brown, by Donna Haraway, by a number of people, by a number of artists. As doing something like this, um, but I go back to to Nelson Goodman, uh, American philosopher in mm-hmm. the 1970s, who writes about this. And the kind of basic idea is that um, when we're perceiving the world, you know, we're perceiving it through a particular pattern, right? We are disposed towards certain kinds of explanations, towards certain kinds of emotional reactions, towards certain kind of grouping of similar things together. And what this kind of fantastical, beautiful art can do is that it works on on that vision in that it re- redistributes the way that we can group things together or see the world mm-hmm. so for for example to give perhaps a facile example you are engaging with the painting that we've just mentioned and you look away from the painting and you look let's say at the history of the african continent and suddenly that history doesn't appear necessarily as tragic. It doesn't appear necessarily as dominated by the narrative of Western exploitation, but rather appears, you know, mysterious, uh, attractive, interesting. Yes, still in some sense tragic because the sibyl is foretelling disaster. Nevertheless, you perceive it quite differently. Now, if... You're thinking about the way in which attitudes, broadly speaking, in Western culture in the last 50, 60 years have changed with regards to sexuality, with regards to women, with regards to race relations and so forth, right? I think we cannot tell that story without invoking the power of cultural production, including art, in changing those sensibilities. Mm -hmm. For me, the story goes something like this, right? What is political change? Political change is in some sense a change in the law. How can change in the law happen? Well, it happens against the background of shifting dispositions, of shifting perceptions. Those perceptions are shaped by the broader culture, by the broader cultural production, including you know, advertising, film, and so forth. Yeah. What art as art does is that it is a kind of experimental shaping of those perceptions, right? Mm-hmm. So for me this kind of uh, contemporary art, which aims towards aesthetic experience, which aims towards narrative, which aims towards reshaping of our perceptions is a kind of experimental form of world-making. So that's, the, that's my take, yeah. if you like.
0: I have two questions in regard to this. So one is whether that experimental nature isn't in some sense an almost invalidating contrast to the other types of arts engagement with politics, so the, the, the truth regime and the, the social practice. And I think that, beyond that those answers might be kind of straightforward. And a second, hopefully more amusing question is, is this something new? As this experiment, or rather this world-making, wonder-inducing function of art, and I am going to now go back to your use of the word beauty, is there anything new in this? So I see the formulation, of course, we have needed to narrativize art, um, maybe biological, maybe still somehow cultural, despite um, modernity's assault on, on, on things that came before it. Maybe we still have this residual desire for the beautiful and and all those kind of connected things. So are we... Are we in this weird position of just redescribing the the obvious to ourselves? That's not to mm-hmm. diminish your argument. I find this incredibly heartening, the fact that you can square all these things together and still somehow arrive at this desire. But are we rewriting history that we have already forgotten, art history, art theory that mm. we have forgotten? Or has something indeed materially, historically changed that requires this reinvention of this, this theoretical apparatus?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I would like to say both. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, in some sense, this kind of world making is something that you could associate. And I think one should associate with culture at its broadest and going as far back in history as possible. Right. Um, yeah. You absolutely can go to any number of, arts, crafts, in any number of cultures, and say that they perform precisely this function, right? That they make the world of meaning that that political community inhabits. And whether you're talking about ancient China, or, you know, Neolithic settlements, or Renaissance Europe, I think, you know, that account, philosophical account of world making is meant to be broad enough that it captures all of that, right? Mm -hmm. And insofar as those all those cultures uh, would have tried to create their shared habitus, if you like, you know, their shared uh, space of meaning through a beautiful object uh, or, or through some kind of experiential component, then, you know, that, that would hold. So, so in that sense, I do think I am kind of going back to things that are historical and I don't want to say universal <laughs> because that's quite bad, <laughs> but almost.
0: What, what is um, it? Oh my god! I don't know.
1: I might, I might be punching too, too, too far above my station. But anyway, <laughs> but as to the other question, okay. But what is new, right? Mm. What is new here? So I think what's new. One thing that is new is that now these forms uh, exist within okay. quite a specialized field of contemporary art. Secondly, that they compete with the culture industry, broadly speaking, right? Because you might say, who needs uh Lina Aris Victor's paintings that you know not so many people can see because they're in a museum? You mm-hmm. have TV shows, you have adverts, you know, you have adverts that are all about in- inclusivity, let's say. You know, why why do we need art? So art has to, in some sense, distance itself from that broader world-making in the culture industry. And especially if we're talking about you know, quote-unquote progressive art, right? We might wonder, well, how is this different from the kind of official culture of democracy, which is, you know, anything from banks to universities to whatever, you know, flying gay flag and saying diversity matters to us. So the the worry is then, what's the difference between kind of critical art making and the way in which democracies or democracies of the West or capitalist democracies... Mm -hmm. Kind of embrace these ideals in a, in a way that we might consider somewhat empty, right. These are two new things. And the third new thing that I touch on a bit more experimentally in the in the last chapter on on climate change is could we harness that sort of experimental world making to really imagine worlds you know so different from our own? that we could productively hope to inhabit them with regards to such global issues as decarbonizing our economy. I mean, that is a huge question, yeah. but uh, yeah, these are, I, th- I think the kind of new things that you can, though, I, I hope excitingly think about once you think of art's role in political process as having to do with world making, changing the, inhab- the shared space of meaning, and maybe yes, maybe even beauty.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we seem to be stuck on beauty. So let's row row back out of this into the realm of the ugly and the and the potentially quite nasty. You have a chapter of which I think lets us deal with this as a, as a problem that's kind of live, but, but also slightly more indetermined. So I'm not going to let you talk about climate change because it's a little bit too early. We need another 40 years to find out whether art can do anything and whether your idea of art doing anything will have been right. <laughs> but the emergence of post-internet art, which is one of the chapters, I think provides a potentially interesting case study. Interesting case study of actually assessing your approach to to, to things. So you, on the one hand, look at artists like Ryan Tricartan and Amalia Ullman, this kind of generation of artists who are very actively producing this kind of opulence of stimulus. Mm. And there are so many different approaches, you know, this kind of nihilism, but there's also manipulation.
1: Mm.
0: And you do all that. I'd like you to to kind of give us a little bit of a description of the scene, as you say, say, Mm -hmm. but as you do that, to avoid entrapping you, I want us to think about the way that you end that chapter, which is the internet is ugly and elected Trump, it caused Brexit, and it's cre- you know create, creating neo-Nazis. Because that is, I think, a test of some of the aesthetic ideas that we've been discussing, because at which world-making and the acceptability of world-making hinges on the content of the politics that it's motivated by. Mm. Well, let's mm. start by talking about well, you know, what, what post-internet art mm. is in the way that it's been useful useful to you. Yeah, so, so
1: it's a contested term by art historians and so forth. But um, essentially, this is a generation of artists uh, kind of active in the late 2000s, early 2010s, who seemed to kind of sum up the experience of the new internet domain. Um, so I'll talk about Ryan Tricartan just because I really remember seeing a Ryan Tricartan piece. Absolutely loved it when I first saw it. And I still think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think he'll really be kind of remembered and canonized. Uh, Here's my, here's my take on that. (laughs) But anyway, I, I, you go in there and you're bombarded with these characters who look like something out of RuPaul's Drag Race. Avant La Lettre, mm-hmm. I suppose, uh, and they're kind of strutting around and walking around and posing and pouting. And then on top of that, there's uh, loads of little GIF images and kind of incomprehensible slogans like where is ease appears out of nowhere. Some planes go across the screen and it all just feels like the Internet. This incessant clicking bits of information, shouting for your attention, swiping through News and then pornography and then likes on Facebook and so forth, right? And at that point, this was two thousand and eight or something like that, right? It felt like, well, here is art that's kind of captured that that madness, if you like. But then contemporary art critics, let's say, turned against this kind of art. In part because uh, some years later, of course, it turns out that internet isn't just uh, fun and games and overstimulation, but also has huge consequences for the democratic sphere, right? Creating polarization, populism, surveillance capitalism, Cambridge Analytica scandal, etc., etc., right? And it was felt that these artists just haven't explored deeply enough the way in which the, the new world of online culture has ruined the democracy, if you like.
0: So what do we make of the post-2016 turn of aesthetics on the internet? Um, Mm. You do describe this term in in quite clear terms, and I've I've seen Mm -hmm. this canonization in so many places, and you actually tackle it it head on. You speak about the ambiguity and irony, which are some of the techniques used by post-internet artists before 2016. And you talk, I don't know if you use the word appropriation, but, but mm-hmm. there's this narrative of the alt-right appropriating mm-hmm. all these ideas. That the, the alt right suddenly has access to to these kind of ungraspable qualities of artifacts and they exploit them for themselves. And this is this is a narrative that has plagued, I think, the art world in as much as that. There's still no consensus. I mean, completely yeah. on outside of, of theory, these basic questions continue to be the subject of court cases until this very day. So, how is it that um we can world make with ambiguity and and mm. and, and be experimental for progressive causes in on the one hand, but we must be very afraid of, of Pepe the Frog on another?
1: Yeah, okay, good. So To give a tiny bit of context, right, so, yeah, after 2016, one of the big things that people started thinking about, Angela Nagel wrote this book, Kill All Normies. I mean, yeah, she then predictably got a lot of flack for it as well, Mm -hmm. but I think that the central argument, you know, is interesting. And it's basically to say that um, the way that the alt-right kind of utilised This kind of bathic humor, irony, appropriation, that it sort of like started to kind of appropriate the postmodernist array of aesthetic strategies like humor, sarcasm, kind of relativity and so forth, but now to... Put forward a kind of harmful far right message. So, so the kind of worry was that all these instruments that the progressive left had tended to think the domain of its art have now been seemingly appropriated by the far right. And what do we kind of make of that? I, I think you know that, that there is something to be discussed there. To what extent this is still the case? To what extent it was ever the case? Mm-hmm. You know, in many ways, of course far-right political parties tend to still, like all political parties, in fact, you know, embrace aesthetics of order uh, rather than aesthetics of sarcasm and so forth. But anyway, the kind of the other interesting question that you point to that comes from this is, should we be so enthusiastic about the progressive ability of art to generate productive ideas through beauty and through world-making or should be skeptical should we be skeptical of that because equally those tools can be used to create you know regressive ideas let's say mm-hmm. i think you know this question can be phrased in an extremely meta level and that level would be we have a set of tools we have we have a set of approaches towards something that set of tools of approaches can generate one outcome which is politically bad and it can generate another outcome which is politically good. Um, should this set of tools be used? And I think, yes, but it should be used for whatever outcome you think is politically good. I mean, in a sense, the the, the question <laughs> of, of kind of political alignment doesn't come into it. I mean, do I think that there can be far right world make? Of course, there can be for sure, right? There's nothing that's about world making that pr- predisposes you towards a political set of political allegiances no more than there is in, I don't know, writing. Mm -hmm. But then there's, I guess, like another question, to what extent should that be embraced or studied? So should we study the ways in which um, political positions that we find reprehensible utilize world-making? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot that we can kind of learn from that uh, or learn about those political processes. Yeah, I don't really see the there being a problem? Or did you want to point into a different direction?
0: I mean, I don't know. If I was going to to try to tell you why there is a problem, uh-huh. it comes from your attempt to square the different modes of political engagement that art has because the mm-hmm. institution cannot be taken out of the equation I alt- see. Institution, alt- yeah. altogether. And the institution is sort of a, a byword for, for a lot more. Like the institution has mm. embraced... The majority of the practices that you describe—some of them for good reasons, some of them for completely hegemonic, unthinking, for really base reasons—they're not all progressivism of institutions is well considered or does it have good outcomes? Right. To give you, to give you an example, to have one more second on your on climate hopes. You still see uh, art engagement in the climate question as some f- as a contribution to the world making. We really have to imagine something that we have not yet imagined. So, yeah. from that perspective, art really is useful. Yeah. If if we agree on the priors that the climate change is real, um, then it follows that art should in- indeed be very useful because nobody mm. really has a great solution. Check. But then. A week ago, Tate uh, in London held a COP, a climate conference of parties for a bunch of museums, and they have agreed that they will use their platforms to convince the world that the climate action of a particular type is real. So it wasn't about galleries reducing the, the climate footprint, I mean, maybe it wasn't, an influence, mm. but the communique said, we are now propaganda tools for this particular cause. So that, for me, places them in exactly the same place as forensic architecture with this regime of truth, in a way that actually we, we're no longer being asked to imagine a world we are being sold a set of solutions that are not democratic and are not speculative, at which point mm. which point now I'm kind of really sympathetic to the general populace who finds a lot of this kind of art very, very uninspiring. And in the book, you give a hypothetical kind of fail. You you describe a, a fictional but not so fictional artwork, mm-hmm. the way that it's usually framed, to, you know, precisely yeah. to tell you what to think. Hello, welcome to our political exhibitions. This is what you need to think. And I right. think that that is that is that is a problem that it's very difficult to reconcile across all art practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think really, you know, your question points to not so much for me to the worries about world making and ability of art to create a new set of meanings that we might want to inhabit, but really the problem of the institutions and if you like the infrastructure within which art is shown. Right. Mm -hmm. So we might want to ask, given that there are all kinds of political ideals, should especially publicly funded institutions like Tate take signs, right, and show one set of them, should uh, a little bit like the way in which um, we might expect the BBC to have some kind of position of neutrality and to present different uh, approaches, different uh, views, you know, should we have the same kind of expectation of the art institutions? to be fair i don't massively write about that in the book True. but what i would say is that publicly funded institutions i suppose do have some kind of duty to not become mere propaganda tools for sure right i mean that 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 just seems the case with any kind of public institution right yeah. even the university or yeah or or publicly owned media Um, But it also should be said that as as propaganda tools, they're not that effective, right? The kind of parody exhibition that I discuss a little bit is, yeah, when you walk into an exhibition what you see is a bunch of kind of conceptual art objects that you can't really read. And then on the wall, there's something that says, oh, here the artist is subverting gender norms and here the artist is subverting global capitalism, the end, right? That's a very bad kind of exhibition, but it's the kind of exhibition that...
0: Well, I've seen happens... it too, don't worry.
1: <laughs> yeah, that happens quite often, right? And that is because there's a kind of a confusion there between taking a political inst- position as an institution and thinking about the capacity of art to create a shared space of meaning or capacity of art to create a different new kind of world, right? So yeah, I hope that that in these chapters, I I do offer something of a different opportunity or a different way forward, which would be to think more about what kind of art do we need or how do artists create these artworks that bring people in that achieve something that pure propaganda cannot
0: okay is that the positive message we can end on <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> i
1: tried to sort of skew it a little bit towards a positive message so it's nicer to end on that note
0: oh <laughs> well, brilliant thank you so much for
1: thanks thanks pierre that wasn't too adversarial um to the extent it was pleasingly so so thank you <laughs>
0: Artist Remake the World, a Contemporary Art Manifesto, by Vitsimoniti, is published by Yale University Press. I'm Pierre Delancin, and dear The Rose Marshall Poe, thanks for listening, join us next time.